When I ask people what they might anticipate studying in a university course on the American West, the list often fills with familiar frontier-era topics of cowboys and Indians, outlaws, pioneers, stagecoaches, and the like. This is why I often get quizzical looks when I mention teaching or researching the modern West. The associations many hold with the West as a region are firmly planted in the pre-1900s. But believe it or not, the region has continued to exist and has undergone unique developments that are as important to broader national histories as those storied frontier mythologies. Welcome to Riding Westward again. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. And today we chat with Professor Sarah Deutsch about her new book, Making a Modern U.S. West, the contested terrain of a region and its borders, 1898 to 1940. With her, we will dip into the modern West and consider how the United States actively use it as a playground to experiment, define, and debate what the modern nation would be and who would belong. Thanks for joining. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Sarah Deutsch is a professor of history at Duke University. Many of her books and other publications have focused on women and gender, along with various intersecting subfields. Her most recent book, which we discussed today, Making a Modern U.S. West, The Contested Terrain of a Region and Its Borders, 1898-1940, was published just this year, 2022, by the University of Nebraska Press. In this book, Deutsch reveals how in the first half of the 20th century, the United States used the West as a stage to both practice and perform different versions of modernity. But the West's storied past as an exceptionally diverse region with entrenched traditions of contest and debate did not produce any unified vision of what it would look like or who would belong in its modern state. Deutsch thus traces contests over borders and belonging, labor and political activism of those pushing for alternate paths for the region, the uneven developments of speculative economies, and the ever-looming presence of federal power. Throughout, Deutsch points us to just how messy national and regional development was in the early 20th century, as the region and nation struggled over what it would be in the modern world. The reverberations of this are still felt now as we wade through the early decades of a fraught 21st century. 
These histories offer important commentaries that Westerners would be wise to consider today. Professor Sarah Deutsch, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the new book. And it is a big one. Uh, I don't have your other ones. I don't know if they're quite so hefty. No, this is the biggest one, the doorstop. <laughs> well, um, I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, I was asked to review this book for someone, and I kind of already had it on my radar. And I thought, you know what? Yes, I'll do the review and I'll do the interview and uh, spend a lot of time with this book. So I'm really excited to think about it and, and to talk about it with you. Well, thank you. So, it's a lot to take on. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, every every episode is a little different. Some with some authors were able to really do a real good coverage of everything that was in whatever it was they wrote. Some books we barely scratched the surface. This may be the latter, because there's <laughs> just so much going on uh, in your work. But we'll see if we can pick out some some interesting uh, nuggets uh, for people to think about. So Making a Modern U.S. West sits us in this really interesting time of transition, early, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, when you know the myth, much mythologized frontier West is giving way to something more modern, but yet unclear what the modern or modernized West is going to look like. So you trace these storylines of how the nation uses the region as a kind of playground or, or a laboratory to self-consciously uh, build a modern uh, nation state and, and also defining like who belongs, who doesn't belong. Um, so I, I want to start by asking you what, what led you to this, this era, this transitional period? Um, and uh, what were the initial questions that you kind of brought to this project? So this is a period I've worked on in various ways and in various geographic areas. and. For me, this period so captures the foundational elements of who we become as a nation in the late 20th and early 21st century and a series of possibilities that then get foreclosed. But also then I just had these questions. It, I was so struck when I was reading about the late 19th century about the ways in which Black Migration West was foreclosed um, twice, you know, once with the 1870s and then once again with the gerrymandering out of existence and kind of Black power in the West. And then, by the way, at the sort of end of this period, Brown versus the Board of Education is Kansas. And we never think of this as a Western issue. And I thought, what happens if you take seriously the role of the West in creating a sort of notion of who Americans are and what our racial formations are. And I knew from my earlier work that this is a very complicated landscape, but I also knew that it had much more impact on the rest of the country and the way it thought about these issues than had been given credit for. So were you intentionally approaching this as a, because like there's a lot of work being done right now about the Civil War West, uh, mm. reconstruction in the West, taking lots of yeah. national topics that there's a million books written on, but trying to show that you know, the West was a serious player in this national story. Was that your uh, your explicit intention? Well, you know, as you said at the beginning, it was always this um, balance between like how did the East shape the West and how did the West shape the East? 
And so people talk a lot about, is it a region or is it a process and how do you deal with that? And to me, it's a region, it's like a box, but it's a region that has so much mythology attached to it that it's shaped by people's expectations as they come there. And then they make those expectations real when they can. And the policymakers in the East are very invested in making this land into what they want it to be. And it affects policy in Washington. And the whole thing of it affects the whole region and all those complicated tendencies affect wh what kind of claims the US can make. And in this period, the US is trying to make a claim about its role on the world stage. And it uses the West to be able to enhance that claim. So how does it leverage its previous and ongoing colonization and development of the West? How how is the, how are U.S. policymakers or diplomats kind of leveraging the Western project um, to, to to stake their claim as a as a real world player? I think it's very much in the context of the second sort of European imperial moment, where in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century you have an expansionist England, you have an expansionist France, you have Germany claiming colonies, and the U.S. is cut out of all that, and so. How does the US then get to be a global player? What kind of claims it can make can it make? And as a result of the Spanish-American War, it now has colonies. It has a kind of global presence. But what does that mean about the relationship between those colonies and the mainland? And how does it claim that it has the state capacity to rule, right? If it's only got a rambunctious West that's not containable, that's not orderly, that isn't something that the state can control. It can't really claim to have a larger place in the world. And those big imperial nations were very much racialized empires. They were nation-based empires and they were racialized. And so it was as a white player, as a white nation that we were making these claims. And so in the West, we could say, look, you know, we've already governed uh, Native Americans, we can govern Mexican Americans, we can control the South, but more we can control the West, and we can impose modern scientific production and corporate will on this blank landscape that, of course, wasn't blank at all, but <laughs> we can make it blank. Yeah. You you know, a couple of times, and uh, my students always get I'm sure they roll their eyes every time we mention <laughs> Frederick Jackson Turner mm -hmm. and the Turner thesis. Um, and I know we've probably mentioned it on the podcast before, but, you know, in the 1890s, Americans were thinking about the frontier, which which Turner claimed was closed, but which he also laid out this idea that, you know, that that westward process of conquering the frontier is what made successive generations of Americans or immigrants uh, American. It's what made them American, the frontier experience. And the frontier is gone. So, 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 so this is that moment that we're starting in then. So are Americans um, aware of this or explicitly thinking about like, well, how do we remake ourselves now? Um, maybe it's, it'll be the West again, as, as how, how we define ourselves as a nation. Like how cognizant are they of kind of, uh, of some of these ideas about national identity and establishing like who you are and who you aren't and the West's role in that. 
It's a really interesting question. And there certainly is a lot of rhetoric that's spilled both in Congress and in the West. And over and over and over again, you hear this drumbeat of this is going to be the pinnacle of Anglo-Saxon civilization. This is a white man's West and we're gonna keep it as a white man's West. And so there is this sense of precariousness in those claims, that it's this struggle to make it that West and that there's an entitlement to that West. And there are people are beginning to be aware of limits. There's all the upheaval in us, industrial upheaval, strikes, riots in these cities. And so the, they still see the West as the place where this is supposed to be resolved. There's space in the West, if you can conquer it. And the new way to conquer it, of course, is irrigation, right? So the West may have been closed. Turner may have thought it was closed. But now if you can irrigate it, there's all these spaces you can open up and people can go there and fulfill their dreams of belonging and of prosperity, but only if they're white. Those spaces are supposed to be for white and prior experience with ir irrigation, that doesn't count. It wasn't right, it wasn't modern, it wasn't done by white people, and it wasn't producing huge surpluses that could be economic engines for the nation. So there's definitely this sense of uh, a national project in the West uh, that gets picked up in Congress and by politicians. But then, you know, your Joe average citizen and your immigrant citizen or would-be citizen still thinks of this land as a land of opportunity. They come West with those expectations and they encounter there people who are quite happy already to be there. And, and this land is already occupied. And so those clashes come at the same time, but there it's a period of immense mobility. So, you know, I talk about diasporas in the book. So there's this um, British imperial diaspora. You have people coming from Ireland. You have people coming from India. You have people coming from China. You have Mexicans coming from the South. And they're all converging along with European immigrants and African-Americans on the same landscape and in the same towns. And Turner had this vision like, yeah, and it's in those mining camps that they figure out how to coexist and rule each other. And I find like, yeah, it's really confusing in those mining camps. There's one mining camp where they have a committee of three men who get to decide who's a Mexican and who's not because they are determined that this only white people should work in this camp. I don't think this is exactly what Turner had in mind. I think yeah. Turner deliberately was pretty selective in what he saw as the seedbed of democracy. But you do have these efforts to figure out a modus vivendi. And when everybody is determined to make their dream a reality, it can get really violent. And you have these places where the Irish people who are claiming the rights that should have been theirs in that little island off England are running into South Asians and East Asians on the West Coast of the United States and feeling these people are threatening their access to that image and literally try to drive them into the sea. Yeah, it reminds me of, I don't remember which essay it was, but maybe it was one of the essays, uh, one of Patty Limick's essays in Something in the Soil where she talks about uh, what are the four C's of the West? And it's like, you know, conquest, of course. Um, complexity um oh man uh conflict maybe but then one of them was convergence that this is a region where uh we have a shocking uh racial ethnic religious uh 
national diversity in the region and play in ways that we don't see uh, in the East. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different groups out there with very different priorities about what the West is going to look like. So even if the East is looking out West and has this project, this idea of modernizing the region and using kind of using the West as a way to solve Eastern problems in a way, as you note, uh, it's not it's not a blank canvas. There are people out there, right? Well, then one of the things, one of the ways in which the U.S. shows, or tries to show that it has what it takes to govern this kind of diverse, messy landscape is to try to create a kind of order. And it's often a fictive order, right? I mean, it's trying to decide like, who are these people? We need to have categories because categories are modern because they're legible and we're going to put everybody into a category. And one of the things I find that I really thought was kind of hilarious is they didn't really care if it wasn't consistent at all. Like, you know, sometimes Asians could be white and sometimes they weren't white and sometimes Mexicans are white and sometimes they weren't white. And this didn't really bother the federal government. It was kind of useful to have this flexibility as long as they were counted and categorized at all. So that it was like, this is part of being a modern state to be able to impose this and to have census categories, which kept shifting and to be able to count your population, which then can let you mobilize the population when you need to. And so that was the way, one of the ways in which they sought to impose order on this diversity. And then at the state level, of course, you had different kinds of conflicts um, and, uh, and struggles going on that could end up with contradictory results. Did you approach this project thinking that you were going to have race be one of the through line themes kind of throughout the book of, because throughout you, you show how the United States is using race as a way to, yeah, to categorize people, to define who belongs and who doesn't, and to frame what the modern nation state uh, was going to look like. So did you come to the project thinking that race was going to be uh, one of the big factors, or is that something that surprised you along the way? I, I have always in my historical career seen race as a major motor of the ways in which history plays out in the way people mobilize ideas about race and about difference um, in that sense. I, I was surprised by the ways it played out often. And I was surprised by the extent to which there was this determination, particularly in the early decades, over and over again in every aspect from irrigation and land development and hunting and all these ways in which it was really determined that this was a, a privilege for white people and this was gonna save white people and that's what counted. I, it's not like I hadn't seen racism in the earlier parts of the work I've done, but I just was not prepared for it to be quite so pervasive <laughs> and determining. So it popped up at just in, in, at the local level, for instance, in ways that you didn't think it would be, right? Like, yeah, with like hunting or fishing mm -hmm. regulations or um, who's, who gets access to, um, you know, federal funds or, uh, you know, help with agriculture or yeah. all kinds of all kinds of ways. Well, and then there's the way it plays out. I use this case study of Boley, Oklahoma, because the ways it plays out with Native Americans was also a surprise to me. And you know, I knew that African-Americans were coming West with the same dreams of belonging and participating, especially people who had were fleeing the sort of misery and 
and violence and terrorism of the South. And they met in Bully, uh, particularly with Creek Indians, a, a much more welcoming uh, world than they had experienced in the South. But when do African Americans uh, migrate over to Oklahoma and to Bowie? Give, give us, give listeners, kind of the the thumbnail sketch of this town and when it begins. So the town is founded in the very early part of the first decade of the twentieth century, and it's town site developers that are combining with with Creek freedmen and uh, and African American migrants to create a place where they can create an all black town that they can have some control over. And at this period, they can vote in Oklahoma. Black people form an important voting block um, that then gets gerrymandered out of existence. But um, so it's, it's early on, Booker T. Washington comes to visit in 1908 and he loves what he sees. And he says, this is incredible. And there were, there were big buildings. They were modern buildings. They were three-story brick buildings. There were schools. There were um, hotels, theaters. And, uh, but he, this, not, this notion, this sort of romantic notion that I might've had and that some African-Americans had that they would make common cause, that African-Americans and Native Americans would work together against this oppressive white uh, majority was completely not true. It was not going to happen. To the Native Americans in that landscape, African Americans were just another dispossessor, another group trying to come in and shoulder their way into everything that had belonged to the Creeks. And so there was enormous amounts of tension. And the way that Booker T. Washington dealt with this was he said, you know, every time I get introduced to somebody who's supposed to be an Indian, it turns out they're really Black. They're not really Indian. And the thing is that the Creeks had intermarried with escaped slaves. They had intermarried with African-Americans. And so they had a quite diverse racial heritage in our terms of race that was not super significant to the Creek. And so, yes, there were Creek people that he would run into who had black heritage or who had um, that part of um, who they were. But to Booker T. Washington, and ultimately to the federal government, if they had African heritage, they couldn't be Indians. And so there were all these ways in which this notion of a, of a you know, harmony of a world where we could all get along <laughs> was not going to play out easily in these, in these Black town sites. And so you have this world where both Native Americans dreamed that Indian territory could be a Native American state called Sequoia. Very exciting. They said, this whole country used to be ours. Surely we can get one little state. And African-Americans had some fantasy about also having their own territory. Like maybe they could have a state. Neither one of those things was going to come to pass. And they didn't work together to make them come to pass either. Yeah. I mean, one thing I wanted to mention like, a little bit earlier is, you know, you, you highlight all the competing visions for, there's not a unified vision for what, let's, let's make the, the West modern, um, uh, but there, there's no consensus on what that's going to be. And there are some, I think, obvious divides that we would have guessed, right? Um, see, like, you know, like incoming kind of Anglo-white populations with existing Mexican or Mexican-American populations, right? I, we could see that coming. But this story in, in, in Bully, Oklahoma, uh, shows that actually it's much more complicated, right? Mm. Um, it's not just black versus white or white versus native or Mexican. Um, there's, there's a lot more going on here as multiple groups are projecting on this landscape, you know, their ho hopes and dreams and aspirations for, you know, modern development. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, sometimes modernity is is not even just who's included, but it's the whole a way of being. So there's this very very poignant story that comes out in Boley where this um, Native American guy says, "You know, I was at the back of the hearing in this congressional hearing, and I don't like to put myself forward." And so, you know, I had to wait a long time to speak. And he said, in our schools, our kids are like that. They don't put themselves forward. And these African-Americans come in, you know, just like these white people come in and they're all up in the face of the chief. <laughs> they're all being like, I call on me, I'm the first and everything. And our kids are being pushed out of these schools. So it, and you know, that's not about modern versus not modern, but it could be seen as about being modern because what was defined as modern by the US government was conformity to a particular, a particular US model of progressive, aggressive, entrepreneurial, competitive behavior. Well, this is in in a way we've kind of covered some of your part, the part one of the book about demarcating borders and uh, physical and racial and social borders. Um, but the, what, you, what you're saying now kind of leads well into the next section, which you titled Agitating, uh, about, so, so if the federal government had kind of this top-down idea of, well, here's what it's going, here's the program. Uh, and if you want to be on board with modernity, here's what we're going to do. Uh, but you lay out, lay out a bunch of stories of the counter-narratives and people who push back or who offer uh, alternate visions to what uh yeah what the modern west should look like um the one that one that i've found or one aspect of what you how you approach this that i found really interesting was in terms of kind of the progressive era uh, progressive reforms and students of western history uh or of the progressive era you know broadly probably know that for many of the reform movements uh had their earliest successes out west the West was often at the forefront, right, of women's suffrage, of prohibition, of, uh, you know, electoral reform, all kinds of things. Um, but you open this section on kind of reform agitation or alternate, uh, you know, visions of a modern West. You open it with the Mexican Revolution, which I did not see coming. <laughs> and I, I had a, it took me a moment, I had to go back and reread a few things like, wait, wait where is she going with this? Uh, because you present the Mexican Revolution um, as uh, either an inspiration for some reform movements or agitators in the West, or at least as a signpost that, that may have been in their minds, maybe consciously or not, of what was possible in terms of kind of pushing back against a vision of the modern West that they didn't feel served them well. Walk us through this entry point of how you, this linkage between, you know, Mexican revolution along the Southern border uh, and, and then, you know, and then more broadly to the ongoing uh, re reform era. I was really struck when I was doing this work with the ways in which the U.S. and Mexico had such parallel regimes. So the Diaz regime in Mexico and the Gilded Age in the United States, these states that were all about facilitating corporate development and corporate takeover. And if that means crushing unions, if that means having certain kinds of worker mobility and facilitating it, if that means subsidizing corporations, you do whatever it takes. And that's your vision of modernity is this corp particular corporate development and the promise that they can control their workers. 
and also what that means about land. And so in both, you know, Mexico, there's this consolidation of land away from the individual landholder, away from the peasants. In the U.S. West, we have the same kind of fears of land monopoly. We have large sort of rancher barons coming in in Wyoming and elsewhere, and even in the um, Arizona and New Mexico. And you have smallholders being dispossessed. And so you have a very similar kind of landscape across that border. And at the same time, you have massive uh, border crossing by, by those exact people who are being dispossessed. So these ideas are extremely fluid. They travel with the people as they march across this border, as they walk across the border. And so I, one of the things that most startled me was how, you know, the sort of motto of the Partido Liberación um, in Mexico was the same as people were talking about in the U.S. You know, like land and um, and freedom and and all these things about a particular kind of democratic participation that they weren't seeing. And it's the same workers. It's the same workers who go on strike in Arizona and Sonora. It's the same workers who are um, agitating uh, and uh, about uh, you know the way the treatment of cowboys and everything that goes on in the Southwest. And so, uh, and the other piece of, so that's one piece is that the, there's this kind of economic similarity or parallelism or it's the same, it's often the same capitalist. So one of the things that surprised me also was how much the capital in Mexico came from the West, not just the US, but the US West investment. And then how some of those people had ties to the White House, to, particularly to Wilson. And so could affect policy that way. Um, but the other piece of it was just how freaked out the U.S. was about the Mexican Revolution. In most of our U.S. history courses, we just pretend that revolution didn't really happen. Like that has nothing to do with U.S. history. But in fact, we massed troops on the border. We talked about it in Congress. We were terrified because it was a socialist revolution on our border. And then we had all these Mexicans that we counted on as labor who, who knew whether they were socialists or not, or who knew whether they were revolutionaries. And a lot of them were. And so I really thought that, that the Mexican Revolution had a huge impact on the way that people thought about the West, the way that workers in the West thought of what they could do because those workers were in mines all up and down the West. They were in the agricultural fields they, and they carried that stuff with them. And, uh, and because uh, the people who had invested heavily in Mexico and who had much more power than those workers, were completely freaked out about what this revolution was going to mean for their property holding and what it was going to mean for the future. So we do, you know, we allow into the history of the United States the Russian Revolution, right, as hugely having an impact and creating a red scare and doing all that stuff and leading to the um, evisceration of radicalism in, in the post World War One period. But we completely ignore the ways in which the Mexican Revolution set that up. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. So that was, that was like a, that was a real treat. I mean, and I've, uh, I, you know, my, my book had quite a bit about the Diaz regime and I was, I've, I've been thinking about that region in this very time period and I've never thought, um, and I knew that, you know, there's labor strikes and things going on across the border, like here in the U S during that same time period, but I never quite thought about it in those terms. Um, well, and there, and part of it is that we like to separate our notions of Western radicalism 
in terms of periods. And so, and as you know from your book, you know, this, this stuff crosses border. It refuses to be contained within this national border, which is so badly marked in this period anyway. And, and then we don't know what to do with it. So like Yaki revolutionary, right? Yaki's were trying to keep hold of Yaki land. You're not supposed to sell them arms in New Mexico and Arizona, but nobody can tell who a Yaki is as opposed to who a Mexican is. And so we say, well, you know, it's these Yaki's working in the mines who are supporting their present Yaki brothers, but they're the same people. They're not the Yaki miners and the little native peasants. It's the Yaki miners who are also native peasants. And it's the same thing. So we want there to be a period where there were struggles over land in the West, and then a period where there's struggles over industrial jobs in the West. But it's not so easily demarcated, right? So in fact, those struggles over land continue both on the part of Native Americans and on the part of small farming um, Hispanos, and then a part of Anglo small farmers, right? Who are also being dispossessed in this period and also gonna have their little uprisings. Um, I didn't mean to make that sound pejorative. <laughs> also <laughs> gonna have uprisings in this period. Um, yeah, it's like, so we, we have the na- the federal government. I think one one place you say that they're wanting to perform modernity, mm. right? Like in, in the West. But then we have all these other Western peoples. Um, so, so if the federal government and, and, and the very, you know, how the federal government is privileging corporate power in the move to control and make the West productive and efficient and, and, and modern and industrialize all these things. Uh, from the bottom up, we have all these other people wanting to perform a very different kind of modern modernism, right? Um, how does how does this uh, how does this emerge then? What are some of the other counter like I mean again you, you use the term agitators like what are some of the other uh, groups that pop up and say no like so there, there's miners that strike um, what are some of the other groups out in the West during this period you know during teen I think teens and twenties is where you mostly cover this kind of topic what are some of the other yeah. groups stand kind of standing up and saying to the government or to corporate powers or or land barons whoever does standing up and saying no 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 the, the modern era needs to be this instead. So I completely fell in love with the nonpartisan league. At one point I thought, maybe I'll just call this book everything I haven't already written about the West. And I had not written anything or known anything about the nonpartisan league. And it's, it's the most, to me, amazing story of grassroots democracy in action. You get these guys, you know, it's not a huge population in North Dakota. So you get these guys and they decide, okay, so we're going to, we're going to create a platform because we are so tired by of having our lives run by the the grain storage people and the grain you know the grain elevator people who grade our our grain and and the mill owners and everybody who controls our lives and so we think that we should have more control over that pricing and uh, and over finance in North Dakota. So we'll create this platform and then we'll find people who will represent this platform. And they have these 45 districts or whatever, and they meet in them and they say, they come up with potential candidates. And it's just so small scale. <laughs> they end up with this guy who's this farmer who's wearing overalls and in town. So he can't even come to the convention. And, uh, and they succeed dramatically. And so in North Dakota, the state begins to run all these enterprises. And they say, well, we're not socialists, even though they're accused of being socialists. 
But we do want to have basically cooperative enterprise. We want the people to run these enterprises. We want the state to run the bank. We want the state to run the grain elevators. And, and of course, there's this tremendous fight against this on the part of the corporations who take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, hey, if the people of North Dakota want to start running a bank, I don't see why they shouldn't do that. And they've said they want to do it. They've written it into the Constitution. And so it's this other sense. It's not that we don't want to be modern. It's who we want to be in control, right? We want to have modern banking. We want to have railroads. We want to have lights, whatever. But we also want to be the ones who control this and who get the profits from this. And uh, yeah, it's, um, and they, one of the ways they do it and referendum recall an initiative were all particularly popular in the West. And it in the Gilded Age and the early progressive era, if not later, often legislatures were basically wholly owned subsidiaries of whatever corporation. Railroads, banks, state. whoever. Yeah. Right. Whoever the, the big South, players are. Yeah. Pacific Gas and Electric, whatever. And so if you wanted to be able to legislate, you had to buy, as the, the people, you had to bypass the legislature. And you could do that with initiative and referendum. You could have new amendments. You could do this. And I have to say, so I totally fell in love with these guys, thinking of them as progressive. I know it's not always progressive. <laughs> it's work out that way with these things. But these guys were able to make it work and they were able to continue to make it work. And the, and the Supreme Court backed them up. And I only just learned that even now uh, in North Dakota to own a pharmacy, pharmacies have to be owned majority by pharmacists. CVS and other enterprises lobbied against this and lost. So pharmacists own pharmacies in North Dakota, not large corporations. And think about what that means in terms of how drugs and health. Anyway, so it's the same. It's a, it's a heritage of the nonpartisan league that you still see happening now, this alternative mode. Huh. I did not know that. I mean, it also draws on, you know, you go back another generation, the, the, the whole populist movement. Like, Absolutely. I don't know, there's something about the planes, you know, that they're, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, all over. And I mean, and you talk about, you know, th throughout the West, the women's suffrage movement is really uh, big and it's kind of one of the biggest reform movements, but all kinds of movements that are about more um, participatory forms of democracy, right? And all these groups presenting that as, like that, that, that's what moving forward is going to be for a modern nation. Right. It's, a, it's this woman who is a, um, a Canadian politician because it's the planes in Canada as well as the U.S., right, that are doing these movements where, where Christian socialism and prohibition and radical labor and all these and women's suffrage are all sort of making an alliance at this moment. And she calls it the greatest movement of the modern age, this expansion of democracy. And of course, women getting the vote doubles the electorate. That's the biggest expansion electorate we have ever had. And so, um, yeah, there's this sense that if you if everybody really gets a voice at the table, you're going to have a very different world. And it does change the relationship of women to the state. 
and it changes the possibilities for women and you get things like mother's pensions and you get equal pay acts in these Western places. And you get the first woman elected to Congress in her own right coming out of Montana and the first women elected to anywhere in the British empire coming out of the same movement allied with the nonpartisan league, my favorite, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Canada from the, from the plains. Huh. Well, I spent nine years on the plains, so we'll see. I don't know if any of that rubbed off on, on me. It definitely rubbed <laughs> off on my wife though. She definitely got radicalized, I think by her, her decade on the great plains. Um, well, let's, uh, let's shift a little bit to, um, the economy maybe. And the last two parts of your book, um, on the twenties and the thirties, uh, uh, deal a lot with economic issues. Um, part three, you, you title speculating about the 1920s and, uh, you know, speculative economic enterprises and speculation is not, um, something new to the West, right? Boom, boom and bust economic cycles and speculation. This is very much part of the mythologized, you know, Western frontier past, but, the 19 speculation in the 1920s, of course, takes on very different colors for us in retrospect, because we know what happens in 1929 and after, which very much, you know, forced Americans to ask different questions about the 20s and speculation. But what is it, what is it about the 20s and speculation in oil, you know, federal agricultural land policy, tourism, all these different things? Um, that you find unique or uniquely modern during the 1920s? How is speculation taking on new modern forms in this era? I was really struck when I was reading congressional hearings about this tension between the speculator as the new American hero who is going to open up the country by taking a risk economically. And the speculator is the evil guy who is keeping the, the small um, farmer, the stable guy who was supposed to develop the West off his land because of speculation. And so it's this moment where we seem to be at a turning point in terms of who's heroic and who's the risk taker and what kind of risk we want people to take. And one of the new things about this period was the ways in which small investors could take a plunge in the market and the way that everyone was fascinated with the market. And it turns out that those liberty bonds, which were not maybe the most efficient way to finance the war, but they got everybody, they, they worked to get everybody involved in the war effort. And they were in small amounts and huge amounts of Americans owned bonds for the first time. It was their first market investment. And so I began to think of them as kind of like a gateway drug, right? So you, when you get to the 1920s and the market is taking off and everybody is saying, this is what's modern. This is the new economic modern modernity and way to, way to make money and head to prosperity and, and risk-taking. And how exciting is that? People are trading in their liberty bonds for stocks in things that are much riskier than those liberty bonds were. And so the federal government, by launching those bonds, by its reforms on the New York Stock Exchange, by its promises of regulation that made it seem safe, really fosters this notion that citizens, to be modern, are market speculators, that they participate in this. And this is the new participation, because after that period of radical agitating in the 1910s, World War I and its aftermath really do a lot to shut that down. 
the level of violence and vigilantism. And vigilantism was that had been endorsed basically by the federal government. Like vigilantism, it's not an accident that the Klan comes after World War One because vigilantism was something that was rampant in World War I and was seen as being responsible citizenry and patriotic. And so the radical, the, the idea that you could have a radical democracy by which I don't mean that people are necessarily leftist radicals, but that everybody gets to participate. What's radical about it is that level of participation and that that's how you're gonna participate in a democracy that gets foreclosed to some extent with the reaction in the late 1910s, early 1920s. And so the outlet is supposed to be economic participation, participation in the market. And that's the new kind of citizenry that you get in that period. So you see, you view this as very new, whereas in a previous generation, the speculator was was very much, was often the villain, right? Out yeah. there exploiting, exploiting things, uh, but now speculative economics are, that's a badge of citizenry. Right, it's still like seen as distorting. Right, it's still like seen as distorting the market. It's seen as opening up opportunity for people. Uh, so it's not gaming the market and exploiting, distorting, being unethical, it's, it's You modern. still hear some of those voices in Congress. There's mm -hmm. still people saying, I don't think this is what we want, but they are overwhelmed by everybody else. <laughs> yeah, but it is highly racialized in terms of, I mean, there's hierarchies about who um, is deemed legitimate or, um, uh, you know, competent to be allowed uh, in, into these speculative economic activities, right? Yeah. One of the things that I was really struck by was the ways in which those lines were drawn a little bit differently from what came before. So women, fine, they can speculate, you know, various immigrant groups. Perfectly fine to speculating. The only people who are not supposed to participate are Native Americans. And they're seen as not being economically modern. They're not capable. They're seen as being incapable of economic modernity. And, it, and there's absolutely no logic to this claim. There's nothing that bears it out. Um, there certainly are a lot of Native American groups that have a more communal sense of the economy. So you have this one guy who's seen as being mentally impaired because every time he makes a lot of money or gets a lot of horses, he gives them away to his relatives, just as you should as a good Native American guy. But no, he must be crazy. Uh, so he shouldn't be allowed to handle his own money. So you have that sense. But you also have that, this, to me, this sense that there has to be some place apart, some place where that kind of sense of virtue, someplace outside of the market, and Native Americans become that place for the U.S., the place that we want them to be. And it's only in the West and it's kind of pure and outside the market. And so the federal government, had, which had done this weird thing starting a couple decades even earlier of saying, well, OK, so we're going to invent this thing called blood quantum. And if you're a Native American who's only like 25% Native American, which is not how Native Americans think about whether you're Native American or not, or a tribal member or not, so this is a completely federal fiction, um, then, then maybe you can handle the market. But if you're completely Native American, then you cannot handle them. You are not a modern economic man. <laughs> you cannot handle the market. And so you can't control your own property. And the other thing they did was to say, this is a very Darwinian age, there's evolution, and there was a notion of economic evolution. So to become a modern economic man, you have to go through stages. 
one of the stages is you have to be a farmer. So they, they want these Native Americans to be farmers, but nobody, no farmers are doing well in this period. And so you have this moment where in Congress, the guys say, well, it's okay if they lose money as farmers, they still have to learn how to be farmers before they can you know, own a fancy car and invest in the market. And it's just like no sense to this at all. So this holding on to this particular imagination of the virtue in hearers and a self-sufficient farmer, just a thing that doesn't really exist, but is part of that whole mythic notion of what makes America. It's very Turnerian, right? Yeah. 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 But this also like overlaps with a, a an era where a lot of Americans are, they're concerned about urbanization and vice in the city and kind of the loss of morals and ethics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fetishization of Native peoples as they then view these non-modern societies in their Western backyard. And they say, oh, but maybe they have something that we have lost. Well, particularly um, after World War One and all that violence. Then and the brutality this, of it, yeah. yeah. It's a real romanticization of Native Americans after that. It doesn't seem to do much to uh, foster Native American rights or Native American abilities to run their own world or to govern their own society, but it does um, foster a greater number of allies and a greater platform on which they can present their material. And it gets them, John Collier is an advocate who will play a major role in the 1930s uh, because he too thinks that there needs to be a way for these alternatives to a, it's alternative visions of modernity, which you can imagine as being somehow a past that you're gonna carry forward, but was really a different kind of modern you could carry forward, a sort of communal nature of people. Uh, and so he becomes, he sees that as essential to preserve and he uh, gets hired as an advocate for Indians and then he carries that forward. Yeah, yeah, him and there's others with other groups too kind of arguing for more pluralistic, diverse mm -hmm. understanding of, you know, what it is that we bring into the modern world with us. Well, after every speculation, you know, comes a bust and the 1930s, well, I mean, for a lot of the West, actually the bust comes in the 20s, you know, a full you know, decade before the rest of the country. But, um, you know, in the context of the Great Depression uh, and especially the New Deal, which uh, if you look at, you know, per capita dollars spent, the West is where the federal government is just pouring money yeah. uh, during the New Deal. Um, and, and this is then, you know, where your book ends in 19, 1940, kind of right up to the yeah. World War II. Um, how do, how do things change uh, during uh, during this this great De great depression era uh, there, there's people are westerners arguing you know for more collective action there's some who you know pivoting away from this idea of like the individual independent economic actor as the modern westerner and now turning to collective action or turning to the federal government to say no you need to step in and help support us in in development so, so what, what's unique about this last stretch of your book, the 1930s? So the, so the crash and the hard times of the 20s are only 10 years after all that agitation, right? So these are the same people. And they did not drink some juice that they made them forget their tactics of before. So they come roaring back to life in the 1930s. They're, they know how to organize. They have experience organizing. 
And they have this different vision that they have managed to keep alive in various places during all this time. And so they, that's one of the things that happens is you have this incredible mobilization going on that then itself inflects the New Deal, inflects the regime in Washington and draws it in a particular way. So Westerners in the 1910s and 1900s had pushed the progressive policies to the left. And in the 1930s, they will again push an agenda that has more room for um, grassroots democracy or for small participation, small owners. But there are, there are just moments where these, um, these efforts, even in the West, collide. One of my favorite moments is when you have the um, Southern Tenant Farmers Union, you have these guys shouldering their way into a meeting that's supposed to decide how land is going to be participating partition and how farming is going to work and everything. It's such a disaster. And, and they're doing this and their vision is, look, collectivization, large-scale farming is what works. It's the only thing that's made money during this period. So we should be doing that. We should collectivize it. We should join together. And their constituents, you know, the, the members of this lefty organization are like, no, thank you. We want our own little incredibly inefficient plots of land. <laughs> We want to be able to do that. That part of the of the Western imagination myth is incredibly sustained and so hard to let go of. And people are still very invested in that. And so is Washington, right? I mean, they still think this is the thing that stabilizes our country is having all these people on the land. So they're looking at the West, which has people running back and forth all over it, millions, literally millions of people on the road, millions of people protesting, millions of people marching into cities and distributing stuff, millions of people dumping there, all these people going back and forth and hopping on trains and really looks a little dangerous for the stability of the country. And what they really want to do is to settle these people on the land and make them a nation of small farmers again, independent, and let them you know, carry democracy forward that way. Yeah, how ironic that like, you know, in the end, the government's idea of of what modern stability needs to look like in, in for the modern U.S. is they're just going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, right? <laughs> and like like his yeoman farmers in this big agrarian republic. Like, so our our modern answer is to to just go back to you know what originally was laid out. <laughs> and what's supposed to make it work in this period, right? You're absolutely right that that's the vision. And so they have all these problems, right? Because everybody was running away from the farm. It's an incredible amount of work. Irrigating farming is even worse. You know, it's hours and hours and hours of labor. It's dirty. It's backbreaking. There are bugs, you know, it's all sorts of problems with farming. All the heroes of the age, Henry Ford, Hoover himself, you know, all these guys, Lindbergh, they all leave the farm. And so how do you sell people back on the farm? You know, you have these massive irrigation projects, these massive dams, these things that are gonna promise that farm life is not gonna be different from modern life anymore. There will be electricity, there will be plumbing, there will be water, um, theoretically. And so, but then there's still the labor, right? You still have to do all this dirty stuff. So the other thing that will be is low wage labor. And that's the deal, you know, in the, in the 30s, nobody wants to say, oh, you can't make your irrigation payments, we're going to kick you off the land and make the West even more unsettled. So instead, they say, oh, you can't make your irrigation payments, we will provide you with labor that really is completely precarious. And, and that is the deal we still have. 
Well, I, this is kind of where I was going to ask, you know, as we're running out of time, like, so you, you, your study ends, uh, what, what year is it right now? Like 80 years ago, right? Um, I mean, I have an anthology coming out in the fall in the 21st century West, trying to think about modernity in the West, you know, all the way to yesterday. Um, so, so if we sit with your book, how, how do we apply it or how can we use it to think about uh, the West or the nation more broadly today? It's mm, a good because, question. Because, I mean, the more I read about, you know, like the, the problems are, are, are often not different. Yeah. They, they just well, recycle over and over again. Sometimes, you know, with different flavors here and there, but uh, we're having the same fights and arguments that we had 100 years ago and 150 and 200 years ago. And the websites of farms now, farm producers now, and the way they talk about labor is exactly the way they talked about labor in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so to me, that's when that system got started. And we have to recognize that this is a system we created if we wanna do something to change that system. That there needs to be a different kind of reckoning about what labor costs and what farm food costs and how we manage our land. And listening to alternatives, you know, we are so in this mindset of there is no alternative. This is the way it has to be. And we foreclosed some alternatives, but we didn't permanently foreclose them. There were always other models. And there are these conservancy districts that are other models of economic participation and political participation, democratic participation and running the economy, even in the West, even in these very um, modern productive centers. And so to me, the book both um, exposes the sort of harsher aspects of the choices that were made in that period and who was excluded and who was included. And also um, illuminates the continued promise and the continued efforts to promote a more inclusive, more participatory democracy in that place, recognizing that there are not easy demarcations between the economics and the politics and between the borders north and south and between the peoples that we would like to keep in nicely distinguished pots. And I would assume if you were to write like a volume two or then three of this, you know, you could follow these exact same dynamics and tensions all the way up to the present uh, in terms of who participates and who doesn't of alt various alternative models for moving the country forward in a, you know, a modern way. Um, yeah, so th this book resonated. It, and it's re it resonated not just with with today for me, but with you know post nineteen forty U.S. history or U.S. Western history all the way up to the present. Um, I, I can see this just reverberating through. So I don't know if you plan to write another six hundred page volume two, nineteen forty to nineteen eighty, and then volume three, nineteen eighty to twenty twenty. Perhaps um, that could keep you busy for another couple decades of, of research. Yeah. Perhaps I'll let you write that one, Brendan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for spending um, some time with us. Uh, congratulations on this book. It's, uh, it's really great. It's, uh, it's a bigger one than I often tackle for the podcast, but I was really excited to do it because it asks some really, big, uh, some really big questions, which I think are important for us to think about as Westerners. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's a real pleasure. All right. Well, take care, Sarah. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. 
please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.